Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 2, 1 through 12. It can be found on page 807 in the Pew Bible. 807 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive your word, that we would rightly respond to it. Would you give us new eyes and fresh eyes to see marvelous things in it so that we might worship Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Have you ever been on a mission to find something? Maybe you were searching for something that you wanted to discover. On a deeper level, people search for answers, for significance, for meaning, or contentment. Or we find ourselves searching for something that we've lost, something that's missing. Maybe it's in a quest in a, in a game that you're playing with your kids. They're lost and you're trying to find them. Or maybe you can't find your keys. And then, you, when you, then it results in impatience and you wonder, how long is this going to take? I've got things I need to get done. I don't have time for this. So you get impatient and frustrated. Well, that was me yesterday. Couldn't find my keys. Well, as as we conclude our, our Advent series and the cast of Christmas, what we see in our text this morning is, is a search for Jesus by the wise men. So they're on this search by, for Jesus by these wise men, to whom even Herod will reply, search for him and let me know when you find him so that I too may come and worship him him. And as they traveled from afar in their quest to find Jesus, I want us to consider these various responses of, of these characters in this story. And we're going we're gonna to focus our attention on the response of the wise men who search for Jesus in order to worship him. So first, and you can see this in your outline, the pursuit of worshiping Jesus. The pursuit of the wise men to worship 
Jesus. So notice verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So sometime after Jesus' birth, wise men from the east, they make their way to Jerusalem. They're on a mission to search and to find the one who had been born king of the Jews. We're not exactly sure how many wise men there were that came to worship Jesus, but it's often been concluded there were three, or at least three, because of the three gifts that they offered to Jesus, frankincense, gold, and myrrh. These wise men, these magi, were likely astrologers, expert astrologers who they, they studied the stars and the heavens, and they were looking for signs and symbols in the sky. Perhaps they came from Babylon or Persia. We're not sure. But what we do know is that they would have been Gentiles, and they came from the east to Jerusalem because they saw the star in the sky. Some time has passed since the birth of Christ. They, they saw the star that a king had been born, and so they travel on this long journey to find him. Just a quick side note here. Jesus is called a child in this story. It describes someone who's probably about two years old. And they're actually going to find him in a house, not in a manger. Right? So we often put this with the Christmas story, but it's actually some time has passed. So this is a long journey for these wise men after seeing the star. They, they were familiar with Jewish expectations of a Messiah that would be born And so here they are. They're looking and searching for the one who has been born king of the Jews. Now, why? Why? Because they're on a mission to worship Jesus. They're on a mission to worship the one who has been born king of the Jews. They want to seek and find Jesus so that they might worship him. Worship means to adore or to express the value of something. And in this instance, it means to to show or display the worth of Christ. In the ancient world, it literally meant to fall down. So you fall down or or it it meant to to kiss towards someone out of reverence or respect, giving them honor and adoration. And worship involves more than what we do on Sunday morning. We know that corporate worship is essential for the life of God. Followers of Christ, it's essential for our spiritual health, right? We're commanded to consistently meet together corporately so that we might worship Christ together, right? We, We are gathered here this morning out of a shared adoration of God in Christ. But as we know, worship is more than that. One writer defined worship in this way. Worship refers to the yielding of one's whole life to God in the concrete realities of everyday existence. Those who worship God give their entire lives over to him so that he is honored and praised in what we do. In Romans 12, 1, we see this. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We'll dive into more of what this means and looks like in the next points. But but what I want us to at least see here is that it was an act of obedience. It involves seeking Christ. 
These wise men, they, they see the star that rose and then they followed it. They weren't distracted by lesser things. They easily could have said, this is probably what I would say, oh, that's too far. Where's it going to lead me? What will this mean for my present lifestyle? What's it going to cost me? What if it doesn't turn out the way I think it should? There's too many obstacles in the way. Perhaps we feel this in our own pursuit of worshiping Jesus. My tendency, my fallen condition, is to be distracted by a thousand lesser things. And not to pursue that which is most valuable because I don't know the outcome or it takes too much effort or there's too many obstacles and then we wonder, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? Obedience to God's commands is an act of worship. Let's resolve this new year, right? We're we're getting close to a new year. Let's resolve this new year to obey Christ's commands, to pursue him in a relationship with him in order that we might worship him on a daily basis, right? It does take effort. It does take, it takes dedication and determination to follow after Christ. We don't drift into knowing Christ better. We don't just drift into holiness, We must strive to pursue to know him more each day. Second, the opposition to worshiping Jesus. The failure of worshiping Jesus. If you you interact with and and observe those in our culture and, and reflect upon the direction of our society and even our own churches, even churches in general, there's often kinds various kinds of opposition that we face. And what we see in our passage, there there are two kinds, at at least here, two kinds of opposition to worshiping Jesus. Indifference and hostility. Indifference and hostility. So look with me at verses 3 through 8. We see this here. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. We're confronted here with two opposing reactions to the birth of Christ. I don't know if you caught it in the previous verses, but but there's a contrast that's set up right from the beginning between Herod and Jesus. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, they come and, and they're asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. The Christ, not the king. So certainly Herod sees Jesus as a threat to his 
rule and reign. Let me give you a little background on Herod the Great. He was a vicious, bloodthirsty tyrant. He wanted power. He took control of Judea in 37 BC after Jerusalem had been captured by Rome. Though not a Jew and not from the family line of Judah, he was given the title King of Judea by Rome. He was considered King of the Jews. Here's the King of the Jews. His leadership was divine by being heavy handed. If anyone plotted to take over his rule or even was a threat to him, he'd have them killed. He even had one of his wives and two of his sons killed because they were a threat to his rule when he didn't trust them. So there's a a real threat upon Jesus at this time. And Herod, upon hearing the the king of the Jews was born, he's greatly troubled. He's disturbed. He's terrified in all Jerusalem with him. Jesus is a real threat to his rule and reign. Jesus is the rightful king from the right family line, from the town of Bethlehem, who was the promised one who would rightly lead and shepherd his people. Jesus is contrasted with this pretend king, Herod. He is the one who would protect, provide, defend, preserve, and lead his sheep in the ways of the Lord. So he's terrified. Herod is terrified. He's greatly disturbed and in turmoil. Anytime there is a rival, his power could be lost. It's been observed that when Herod the Great trembled, the whole city shook. So he, so he wants to inquire, he wants to gather information about where this Christ was to be born. He seems to know that the Jews were expecting and anticipating a Messiah. So he brings in all the experts to discover the birthplace of this child. He does what it takes to find out where the Christ was to be born. The, the chief priests and the scribes, they then come and they immediately share the prophecy given from Micah 5 that he was to be born in Bethlehem, in the city of David. The experts in the scripture know that Christ would be born in a small, insignificant town of Bethlehem. And he would rule as the shepherd king. So Herod then takes this information. He's gathered it and he secretly brings the wise men in and tells them, go look for him. Right? Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So when did this occur? When did you see the star? And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He pretends that he wants to worship Jesus. He claims a desire to worship Jesus, but actually has a plot to destroy him, which is played out in the next sections and having all the children to and under murdered. He gives lip service to Jesus, but his heart is far from him. So two reactions, two reactions that jump out here at us here when it comes to the failure to worship Jesus and the the opposition toward Jesus. The first and obvious opposition to Jesus is evident in Herod. It is hostility toward Christ. It is hostility toward Christ. We see reactions like this in our world. There's an active 
hostility and an outright rejection of Jesus, right? We, we see that. Some are completely opposed to and antagonistic to Christ and his people. It's just the reality that we face. Maybe you've experienced this in your own various interactions with people. In fact, our sinful tendency can show a subtle hostility toward God. Right? Sometimes we look, oh yeah, look at how much the world hates Jesus. Look how hostile they are. Look how antagonistic they are toward God and his people. Look how much they reject Jesus. Then we need to look at our own hearts. There's a subtle hostility that we have in our own hearts toward God. You might ask, how? How? Because like Herod, we don't want another king to rule over us. We are prone to reject any threat to our own selfish desire or rule. And that's what Jesus is to Herod. Jesus is an obstacle in the way of maintaining his own rule in his life. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus is a stone that causes people to stumble. And he must therefore then, in our minds, be removed, or in Herod's mind, he must be removed in order for Herod to maintain his own control and power. That's the one way that unbelievers view Jesus, and we can, we can do that and reject him in our own hearts. We can be hostile because we don't want to yield to him or give up any control in our lives. Perhaps others reject Jesus because he restricts or prevents them from doing what they want to do. Right? Jesus restricts or prevents people from doing what they want. Right? We want to put self on the throne. Not Jesus. I'll follow Jesus as long as it doesn't cost me anything. There's an active rejection of Christ but also a passive rejection of Christ. Did you notice this? And it's, not the, it's not the main point, but the other reaction that we see here, though not highlighted like the hostility of, of Herod, is the indifference. The indifference that we see with the chief priests and scribes. It's not the, the main idea. But sometimes, I think this can be just as dangerous for us to slip into. Because it can be so deceptive in our own lives as well. In the instance here, they know the Bible. They know parts of the Bible. They know the promises in the Old Testament. They know the right answer. They know that Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. They can go right to it. And yet, they don't do anything about it personally. They don't go seek and find him in order to worship him like the wise men did. Perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps they're indifferent to Jesus because they fear Herod. They don't want their current life 
disturbed in any way or have any sort of suffering. Let's just maintain the status quo. So as advisors to the king, they, they can help him out and their life will be just fine. All right, the king approves of me, I'll be just fine. I don't want to disrupt that. Their knowledge of Christ didn't lead to the worship of Christ. Do you know what their indifference led to? I spent some time this week looking at the unraveling of these chief priests and scribes from the point from this point on in the Gospels. I just spent time looking at chief priests, scribes, and just follow through the the storyline of the Bible. And what you see is that they didn't stay indifferent to Jesus. As though they could just be seekers of truth and be content with that. No. When you read on in the story, let me give you some examples. They were seeking a way to arrest him and destroy him. This happens later in the story. Jesus would be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out, Hosanna, right? Hosanna, son of David. They were indignant. While on the cross, they mocked Jesus and said that if he came down from the cross, then they would believe in him. They move from passive indifference to actively being indignant, seeking false testimony, persuading the crowds, mocking him, and then handing him over to be crucified. Their indifference turned to hostility and rejection. If we hold indifference in our hearts long enough, if you hold indifference in your heart long enough, it will become calloused, and potentially lead to dismissing the truths that you have come to learn and know. Now, what's the proper response? What's the proper response to Jesus? This leads to our final point. The practical example of worshiping Jesus. So we're asking the question, what does it look like practically? What does it look like practically to worship Jesus? Jesus. Matthew, he's setting us up for this because he's contrasting Herod, the chief priests and scribes, and then the reaction of the wise men. The religious Jewish leaders failed to worship Jesus, while Gentile wise men, in their pursuit of Jesus, find him and worship him. Right? Matthew is setting this up in verses 9 through 12, we see what this looks like. What does it look like? 9 through 12. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So we see here three practical examples of what's involved in worshiping Jesus. Three specific implications for us of what it means to worship Jesus. Number one, rejoice exceedingly with great joy. 
Right? You want to worship Jesus? Rejoice exceedingly with great joy. They, they followed the star when they, when they saw the location where Jesus was. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They're filled with joy. Right? I don't know how many words you can use to describe their, their overabundance of joy that they had in their hearts. Imagine these wise men, right? This long journey. They're on this long journey in a search for a king, and they finally found him. And the proper response is that their hearts then overflow with joy. We can imagine this even with small things that we search for and eventually find. And the joys that fill our heart. Maybe, maybe you've lost something, you found it. Oh, thrilled, I found it. I remember one instance, Becky lost her, her ring, her diamond ring, her diamond from her ring. It's just a small ring, a small diamond. She lost it, but then it was found. She's filled with joy. Right? That's a pretty big thing. <laughs> right? We can do that even in small things as well. We can feel joy. Imagine this in a far greater way, how much finding the king who would save them and us from our sins, how much greater joy that they have in him. To worship Jesus involves finding your joy in him, rejoice in him. He is our delight and our reward. We are to find our satisfaction and ultimate joy in Christ. Have you had this encounter with Jesus? Has it led you to rejoice with great joy? Number two, humbly, so we rejoice with great joy. Number two, worshiping Jesus. Here's what it looks like. Humbly submitting to Jesus. Humbly submit to Jesus. Bow down to Jesus. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. So when the wise men arrive, they see two people. Mary and Jesus, and they fall down and worship who? Jesus. The proper response to Jesus is to humble oneself before him, to worship and bow down to Jesus and Jesus alone. There is to be no rival in your heart, no rivals. He is to be on the throne of our lives. We are to kneel before the maker and savior. This should be the attitude of our heart that surrenders our rights, our loyalties, our priorities to him. So my question for you is, have you acknowledged Jesus as your king? Have you surrendered your life to him and humbled yourself before him. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And even if, even if you have, right, I, I suspect that many of us have in this room humbled ourselves before God. Let's continue to do so, right? This is a daily thing. Lord, I want you to be Lord of my life today. I need you on the throne today. Number three, so we offer up our lives to him. They offered up their gifts to 
Jesus. The end of verse 11. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They brought their treasures to Jesus and gave him that which was costly and extravagant as was fitting and appropriate for a king. Their gifts, their gifts, these gifts involved sacrifice. There's, there's some sacrifice necessary for us if we are going to worship Jesus properly. It's not, I'm going to just tack on Jesus to my everyday life and situation. I'm just going to tack him on and maybe he'll improve my life in some capacity. No. The wise men were committed to finding Jesus. They sacrificed time. The wise men were prepared to find him. They had treasures ready to give to the king. The wise men offer up those extravagant gifts that would have been given to a superior. They gave treasures. They gave that which was valuable. And by giving it to him, in a real sense, Jesus becomes the one that they ultimately treasure. And that's what it looks like to worship Jesus. For us to properly worship Jesus, it means that we are willing to pursue him in spite of the sacrifices that are involved, in spite of time, in spite of financial restraints, in spite of past failures, and stumbling along the way, right? You're pursuing Jesus. You just keep stumbling and stumbling along the way. Keep pursuing him. In spite of any danger or threat or disruption that might come your way, right? Various obstacles that come your way or of what others might think of us when we pursue him. Worship involves finding Jesus as our joy and treasure and rejoicing in the salvation that he has brought us. It involves humbling ourselves before him Confessing our need for him. That's where we need to start. Confessing our own need for him. Acknowledging that we have a need. And then offering up our entire lives to him. Let's be committed to worshiping Jesus this coming year. Let's make it our aim. that as we seek to know Christ and his word, that it will ultimately lead to the worship of Jesus in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to commit ourselves this year to worshiping Jesus. We want to grow in our relationship with him. We don't want to become stagnant and stale in the Christian life and float along and drift thinking that we'll just get by based on past successes. We need your grace. We need your mercy to be poured out on us in Christ. We, we ask that you would, your spirit would work in us in such a way that we would pursue Jesus so that we might worship him. We know it is costly, but we know it's worth it. Help us fix our eyes upon him this year. In his name we pray, amen.